This is Songwriter, the podcast of stories and answer songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today, we have a double episode featuring one of my artistic heroes. Oh, well, George Saunders, I'm still writing. And uh, I, I don't know, I, I just wrote a book about the Russian short story that was really cool and made me really kind of like a late midlife pause, you know. So I'm kind of thinking I'm a short story writer for sure. That's That's something I'm really into. I'm 62, so I'm maybe kind of looking ahead to the next, you know, X number of years and, and almost trying to maybe just slightly reconfigure my stance, especially after the pandemic. Like, what am I doing with my time? And, and uh, you know, what, what small adjustments can I make in my approach that might make life better, you know, make, make it less wasteful? That's kind of where I am. The story that George is reading is called 10th of December, and because it's three times longer than any other I've had on Songwriter, I've decided to cut it into two episodes. This episode includes the first half of the story, an interview with George, and a song I wrote in response. The next episode will include the second half of the story and a song written in response by Amanda Shires. For now, here's George Saunders. 10th of December. The pale boy with unfortunate Prince Valiant bangs and cub-like mannerisms hulked to the mudroom closet and requisitioned Dad's white coat, then requisitioned the boots he'd spray-painted white. Painting the pellet gun white had been a no. That was a gift from Aunt Chloe. Every time she came over, he had to haul it out so she could make a big stink about the wood grain. Today's assignation, walked a pond, ascertained beaver dam. Likely he would be detained by that species that lived amongst the old rock wall. They were small, but upon emerging, assumed certain proportions and gave chase. This was just their methodology. His aplomb threw them loops. He knew that and reveled in it. He would turn, level the pellet gun, intone, Are you aware of the usage of this human implement? Blam! They were netherworlders, or nethers. They had a strange bond with him. Sometimes for whole days he would just nurse their wounds. Occasionally, for a joke, he would shoot one in the butt as it fled, who henceforth would limp for the rest of its days, which could be as long as an additional nine million years. Safe inside the rock wall, the shot one would go, Guys, look at my butt! As a group, all would look at Jizmon's butt, exchanging sullen glances of, Jizmon shall indeed be limping for the next nine million years, Paul bloke. Because yes, nethers tended to talk like that guy in Mary Poppins which naturally raised some mysteries as to their ultimate origin here on Earth. Detaining him was problematic for the nethers. He was wily, plus could not fit through their rock wall opening. When they tied him up and went inside to brew their special miniaturizing potion, wham, he would snap their antiquated rope with a move from his self-invented martial arts system, Toy Foy, a.k.a. Deadly Forearms, and place at their doorway an implacable rock of suffocation, trapping them inside. Later, Imagining them in their death throes, taking pity on them, he would come back, move the rock. Blimey, one of them might say from withal. Thanks, governor. You are indeed a worthy adversary. Sometimes there would be torture. They would make him lie on his back, looking up at the racing clouds while they tortured him in ways he could actually take. They tended to leave his teeth alone, which was lucky. He didn't even like to get a cleaning. They were dunderheads in that manner. They never messed with his peen and never messed with his fingernails. He'd just abide there, 
infuriating them with his snow angels. Sometimes, believing it their coup de grace, not realizing he'd heard this since time immemorial from certain in-school Cretans, they'd go, Wow, we didn't even know Robin could be a boy's name, and chortle their nether laughs. Today, he had a feeling that the nethers might kidnap Suzanne Bledsoe, the new girl in homeroom. She was from Montreal. He just loved the way she talked. So, apparently, did the nethers, who planned to use her to repopulate their depleted numbers and bake various things they did not know how to bake. I'll suit it up now, NASA, turning awkwardly to go out the door. Affirmative. We have your coordinates. Be careful out there, Robin. Whoa, cold. Dang. Duck thermometer read 10, and that was without wind chill. That made it fun. That made it real. A green Nissan was parked where pool dead-ended into the soccer field. Hopefully the owner was not some perv you would have to outwit. Or nether in the human guise. Bright, bright, blue and cold. Crunch went to snow as he crossed the soccer field. Why did cold such as this give a running guy a headache? Likely it was due to prominent wind speed velocity. The path into the woods was as wide as one human. It seemed the nether had indeed kidnapped Suzanne Bledsoe. Damn him and his ilk. Judging by the single set of tracks, the nether appeared to be carrying her, foul cad. He'd better not be touching Suzanne inappropriately while carrying her. If so, Suzanne would no doubt be resisting with untamable fury. This was concerning. This was very concerning. When he caught up to them, he would say, Look, Suzanne, I know you don't know my name, having misaddressed me as Roger that time you asked me to scoot over, but nevertheless, I must confess, I feel there's something to us. Do you feel the same? Suzanne had the most amazing brown eyes. They were wet now with fear and sudden reality. Stop talking to him, mate, the nether said. I won't, he said. And Suzanne? Even if you don't feel there's something to us, rest assured I will still slay this fellow and return you home. Where do you live again? Over in El Ciro? By the water tower? Those are some nice houses back there. Yes, Suzanne said. We also have a pool. You should come over this summer. It's cool if you swim with your shirt on. And also, yes to there being something to us, you are by far the most insightful boy in our class. Even when I take into consideration the boys I knew in Montreal, I am just like, no one can compare. Well, that's nice to hear, he said. Thank you for saying that. I know I'm not the thinnest. The thing about girls, Suzanne said, is we are more content-driven. Will you two stop already? The nether said. Because now is the time for your death. Deaths. Well, now is certainly the time for somebody's death, Robin said. The twerpy thing was, you never really got to save anyone. Last summer there'd been a dying raccoon out here. He thought of lugging it home so Mom could call the vet. But up close, it was too scary, raccoons being actually bigger than they appear in cartoons. And this one looked like a potential biter. So he ran home to get it some water, at least. Upon his return, he saw where the raccoon had done some apparent last-minute thrashing. That was sad. He didn't do well with sad. There had perchance been some pre-weeping by him in the woods. That just means you have a big heart. Suzanne said. Well, I don't know, he said modestly. Here was the old truck tire, where the high school kids partied. Inside the tire, frosted with snow, were three beer cans and a wadded-up blanket. You probably like to party, the nether had cracked to Suzanne moments earlier as they passed this very spot. No, I don't, Suzanne said. I like to play, 
and I like to hug. Who boy, the nether said, sounds like Dullsville. Somewhere there is a man who likes to play and hug, Suzanne said. He came out of the woods now to the prettiest vista he knew. The pond was a pure frozen white. It struck him as somewhat Switzerlandish. Someday he would know for sure, when the Swiss threw him a parade or whatnot. Here the nether's tracks departed from the path, as if he had contemplatively taken a moment to gaze at the pond. Perhaps this nether was not all bad. Perhaps he was having a debilitating conscience attack vis-a-vis -vis the valiantly struggling Suzanne atop his back. At least he seemed to somewhat love nature. Then the tracks returned to the path, wound around the pond, and headed up Lexo Hill. What was this strange object? A coat? On the bench? The bench the nethers used for their human sacrifices? No accumulated snow on coat. Inside of coat still slightly warm. Ergo, the recently discarded coat of the nether. This was some strange juju. This was an intriguing conundrum if he had ever encountered one, which he had. Once he'd found a bra on the handlebars of a bike. Once he'd found an entire untouched steak dinner on a plate behind Fresno's and hadn't eaten it, though it had looked pretty good. Something was afoot. Then he beheld, halfway up Lexo Hill, a man. Coatless, bald-headed man, super skinny, in what looked like pajamas, climbing plodfully with tortoise patience, bare white arms sticking out of his PJ shirt like two bare white branches sticking out of a PJ shirt or grave. What kind of person leaves his coat behind on a day like this? The mental kind, that was who. This guy looks sort of mental, like an Auschwitz dude or sad, confused grandpa. Dad had once said, Trust your mind, Rob. If it smells like shit but has writing across it that says happy birthday and a candle stuck down in it, what is it? Is there icing on it? He'd said. Dad had done that thing of squinting his eyes when an answer was not quite there yet. What was his mind telling him now? Something was wrong here. A person needed a coat. Even if the person was a grown-up. The pond was frozen. The duck thermometer said ten. If the person was mental, all the more reason to come to his aid, as had not Jesus said, Blessed are those who help those who cannot help themselves but are too mental, doddering, or have a disability. He snagged the coat off the bench. It was a rescue, a real rescue, at last, sort of. Ten minutes earlier, Don Eber had paused at the pond to catch his breath. He was so tired. What a thing. Holy moly. When he used to walk Sasquatch out here, they'd do six times around the pond, jog up the hill, tag the boulder on top, sprint back down. Better get moving, said one of two guys who'd been in discussion in his head all morning. That is, if you're still set on the boulder idea, the other said. Which still strikes us as kind of fancy pants. Seemed like one guy was dad and the other Kip Flemish. Stupid cheaters. They'd switch spouses abandoned the switch spouses, fled together to California. Had they been gay or just swingers? Gay swingers? The dad and Kip in his head had acknowledged their sins, and the three of them had struck a deal. He would forgive them for being possible gay swingers and leaving him to do soapbox derby alone with just mom, and they would consent to giving him some solid manly advice. He wants it to be nice. This was dad now. It seemed Dad was somewhat on his side. 
Nice, Kip said. That is not the word I would use. A cardinal zinged across the day. It was amazing, amazing, really. He was young. He was 53. Now he'd never deliver his major national speech on compassion. What about going down the Mississippi in a canoe? What about living in an A-frame near a shady creek with the two hippie girls he'd met in 1968 in that souvenir shop in the Ozarks, when Alan, his stepfather, wearing those crazy aviators, had bought him a bag of fossil rocks? One of the hippie girls has said that he, Eber, would be a fox when he grew up. And would he please be sure to call her at that time? Then the hippie girls had put their tawny heads together and giggled at his prospective foxiness. And that had never... That had somehow never... Sister Val had said, Why not shoot for being the next JFK? So he'd run for class president. Alan had bought him a styrofoam straw boater. They'd sat together decorating the hat band with magic markers. Win with Eber. On the back. Groovy. Alan had helped him record a tape of a little speech. Alan had taken that tape somewhere and come back with 30 copies to pass around. Your message is good, Alan had said, and you are incredibly well-spoken. You can do this thing. And he'd done it. He'd won. Alan had thrown him a victory party, a pizza party. All the kids had come. Oh, Alan, kindest man ever had taken him swimming, had taken him to decoupage, had combed out his hair so patiently that time he came home with lice, never a harsh, etc., etc. Not so once the suffering begat, began. God damn it. More and more his words askew. More and more his words were not what he would hoped. Hope. Once the suffering began, Alan had raged. Said things no one should say. To mom, to Eber, to the guy delivering water. Went from a shy man always placing a reassuring hand on your back to a diminished pale figure in a bed shouting, Cunt! Except with some weird New England accent, so it came out, Cunt! The first time Alan had shouted, Cunt! There followed a funny moment during which he and Mom looked at each other to see which of them was being called Cunt. But then Alan amended for clarity, Cunts! So it was clear he meant both of them. What a relief. They'd cracked up. Geez, how long had he been standing here? Daylight was waiting, wasting. I honestly didn't know what to do, but he made it so simple. Took it all on himself. So what else is new? Exactly. This was Jody and Tommy now. Hi, kids. Big day today. I mean, sure, it would have been nice to have a chance to say a proper goodbye. But at what cost? Exactly, and see, he knew that. He was a father. That's what a father does. Eases the burdens of those he loves. Save the ones he loves from painful last images that might endure for a lifetime. Soon Alan had become that. And no one was going to fault anybody for avoiding that. Sometimes he and Mom would huddle in the kitchen, rather than risk incurring the wrath of that. Even that understood the deal. You'd trot in a glass of water, set it down, say very politely, Anything else, Alan? And you'd see that, thinking, All these years I was so good to you people, and now I am merely that? Sometimes the gentle Alan would be inside there too, indicating with his eyes, Look, go away, please go away. I'm trying so hard not to call you Kant. Rail thin, ribs sticking out, catheter taped to dick, waft of shit smell. 
You are not Alan, and Alan is not you. So Molly had said. As for Dr. Spivy, he couldn't say. Wouldn't say. Was busy drawing a daisy on a post-it. Then finally said, Well, honestly, as these things grow, they can tend to do weird things. But it doesn't necessarily have to be terrible. Had one guy just always craved him a Sprite. And Eber thought, Did you, dear Dr. Savior Lifeline, just say craved him a Sprite? That's how they got you. You thought, maybe I'll just crave me a Sprite. Next thing you knew, you were that, shouting Kant, shitting your bed, swatting at the people who were scrambling to clean you. No, sir. No, siree, Bob. Wednesday, he'd fallen out of the med bed again. There on the floor in the dark, it had come to him. I could spare them. Spare us or spare you? Get thee behind me. Get thee behind me, sweetie. A breeze sent down a sequence of linear snow puffs from somewhere above. Beautiful. Why were we made just so to find so many things that happen every day pretty? He took off his coat. Good Christ. Took off his hat and gloves, stuffed the hat and gloves in the sleeve of the coat, left the coat on the bench. This way they'd know. They'd find the car, walk up the path, find the coat. It was a miracle that he'd gotten this far. Well, he'd always been strong. Once he'd run a half marathon with a broken foot. After his vasectomy, he'd cleaned the garage, no problem. He'd waited in the med bed for Molly to go off to the pharmacy. That was the toughest part, just calling out a normal goodbye. His mind veered toward her now, and he jerked it back with a prayer. Let me pull this off. Lord, let me not fuck it up. Let me bring no dishonor. Let me do it cling. Let. Let me do it cling. Clean. Cleanly. Estimated time of overtaking the nether, handing him his coat, approximately nine minutes. Six minutes to follow the path around the pond. An additional three minutes to fly up the hillside like a delivering wraith or mercy angel, bearing the simple gift of a coat. Oh, that is just an estimate, NASA. I pretty much made that up. Oh, we know that, Robin. We know very well by now how irreverent you work. <coughs> like that time you cut a fart on the moon. <coughs> or the time you tricked Mel into saying, Mr. President, what a delightful surprise it was to find an asteroid circling Uranus. That estimate was particularly iffy, this nether being surprisingly brisk. Robin himself was not the fastest wicked in the stick. He had a certain girth which Dad prognosticated would soon triumphantly congeal into linebackerish solidity. He hoped so. For now, he just had the slight man boobs. Robin, hurry, Suzanne said. I feel so sorry for that poor old guy. He's a fool, Robin said, because Suzanne was young and did not yet understand that when a man was a fool, he made hardships for the other men who were less foolish than he. He doesn't have much time, Suzanne said, bordering on the hysterical. There, there, he said, comforting her. I'm just so frightened, she said. And yet he is fortunate to have one such as I to hump his coat up that big-ass hill, which, due to its steepness, is not exactly my cup of tea, Robin said. I guess that's the definition of hero, Suzanne said. I guess so, he said. I, I don't mean to continue being insolent, she said, but he seems to be pulling away. What would you suggest, he said. With all due respect, she said, and because I know you consider us as equals but different, with me covering the brainy angle and special inventions and whatnot. Yes, yes, go ahead, he said. Well, just working through the math in terms of simple geometry. He saw where she was going with this, and she was quite right. No wonder he loved her. 
you must cut across the pond, thereby decreasing the ambient angle, ergo trimming valuable seconds off his catch-up time. Wait, Suzanne said, is that dangerous? It is not, he said, I have done it numerous times. Please be careful, Suzanne implored. Well, once, he said. You have such a plum, Suzanne demurred. Actually, never, he said softly, not wishing to alarm her. Your bravery is irascible, Suzanne said. He started across the pond. It was actually pretty cool walking on water. In summer, canoes floated here. If Mom could see him, she'd have a conniption. Mom treated him like a piece of glass. Due to his alleged infant surgeries, she went on full alert if he so much as used a stapler. But Mom was a good egg, a reliable counselor and steady hand of guidance. She had a munificent splay of long silver hair and a raspy voice, though she didn't smoke and was even a vegan. She'd never been a biker chick, although some of the in-school cretins claimed she resembled one. He was actually quite fond of Mom. He was now approximately three-quarters, or that would be sixty percent across. Between him and the shore lay a grayish patch. Here in summer, a stream ran in. Looked a tad iffy. At the edge of the grayish patch, he gave the ice a bunk with the butt of his gun. Solid as anything. Here he went. Ice rolled a bit underfoot. Probably it was shallow here. Anyways, he hoped so. Yikes. How's it going? Suzanne said trepidly. Could be better, he said. Maybe you should turn back, Suzanne said. But wasn't this feeling of fear the exact feeling all heroes had to confront early in life? Wasn't overcoming this feeling of fear what truly distinguished the brave? There could be no turning back. Or could there? Maybe there could. Actually, there should. The ice gave way, and the boy fell through. Nausea had not been mentioned in The Humbling Step. A blissful feeling overtook me as I drifted off to sleep at the base of the crevasse. No fear, no discomfort, only a vague sadness at the thought of all that remained undone. This is death, I thought. It is but nothing. Author, whose name I cannot remember, I would like a word with you, a-hole. The shivering was insane, like a tremor. His head was shaking on his neck. He paused to puke a bit in the snow, white-yellow against the white-blue. This was scary. This was scary now. Every step was a victory. He had to remember that. With every step, he was fleeing father and father, farther from father, stepfather. What a victory he was resting from the jaws of the feet. He felt a need at the back of his throat to say it right. From the jaws of defeat, from the jaws of defeat. Oh, Alan, even when you were that, you were still Alan to me. Please know that. Falling, Dad said. For some definite time, he waited to see where he would land and how much it would hurt. Then there was a tree in his gut. He found himself wrapped fetally around some tree. Fuck's sake. Ouch, ouch. This was too much. He hadn't cried after the surgeries or during the chemo, but he felt like crying now. It wasn't fair. It happened to everyone, supposedly, but now it was happening specifically to him. He kept waiting for some special dispensation, but no. Something, someone bigger than him kept refusing. You were told the big something, someone loved you especially, but in the end you saw it was otherwise. The big something, someone was neutral, unconcerned. When it innocently moved, it crushed people. Years ago at The Illuminated Body, 
he and Molly had seen this brain slice. Marring the brain slice had been a nickel-sized brown spot. That brown spot was all it had taken to kill the guy. The guy must have had his hopes and dreams, closet full of pants and so on, some treasured childhood memories, a mob of koi in the willow-shaded Gage Park, say, Graham searching in her Wrigley's smelling purse for a tissue, like that. If not for that brown spot, the guy might have been one of the people walking by on the way to lunch in the atrium. But no, he was defunct now, off rotting somewhere, no brain in his head. Looking down at the brain slice, Eber had felt a sense of superiority. Poor guy, it was pretty unlucky what had happened to him. He and Molly had fled to the atrium, had hot scones, watched the squirrel mess with a plastic cup. Wrapped feedly around the tree, Eber traced the scar on his head. Tried to sit. No dice. Tried to use the tree to sit up. His hand wouldn't close. Reaching around the tree with both hands, joining his hands at the wrists, he pulled himself up, leaned back against the tree. How's that? Fine. Good, actually. Maybe this was it. Maybe this was as far as he got. He had it in mind to sit cross-legged against the boulder at the top of the hill, but really, what difference did it make? All he had to do now was stay put. Stay put by force thinking the same thoughts he'd used to propel himself out of the med bed and into the car and across the soccer field and through the woods. Molly, Tommy, Jody, huddling in the kitchen, filled with pity, loathing. Molly, Tommy, Jody, recoiling at something cruel he'd said. Tommy hefting his thin torso up in his arms so that Molly Jody could get under there with a wash. Then it would be done. He would have preempted all future debasement. All his fears about the coming months would be mute. Moot. This was it. Was it? Not yet. Soon, though. An hour? Forty minutes? Was he doing this? Really? He was. Was he? Would he be able to make it back to the car even if he changed his mind? He thought not. Here he was. He was here. This incredible opportunity to end things with dignity was right in his hands. All he had to do was stay put. I will fight no more forever. Concentrate on the beauty of the pond, the beauty of the woods, the beauty you are returning to, the beauty that is everywhere as far as you can... Oh, for shit's sake... Oh, for crying out loud, some kid was on the pond. Chubby kid in white, with a gun, carrying Eber's coat. You little fart, put that coat down, get your ass home, mind your own... Damn, damn it. Kid tapped the ice with the butt of his gun. You wouldn't want some kid finding you, that could scar a kid. Although, kids found freaky things all the time. Once he'd found a naked photo of Dad and Mrs. Flemish, that had been freaky. Of course not as freaky as a grimacing cross-legged kid was swimming. Swimming was not allowed. That was clearly posted. No swimming. Kid was a bad swimmer, real thrash fest down there. Kid was creating with his thrashing a rapidly expanding black pool. With each thrash, the kid incrementally expanded the boundary of the black. He was on his way down before he knew he'd started. Kid in the pond, kid in the pond, ran repetitively through his head as he minced. Progress was tree to tree. Standing there panting, you got to know a tree well. This one had three knots, eye, eye, nose. This started out as one tree and became two. Suddenly, he was not purely the dying guy who woke nights in the med bed thinking, make this not true, make this not true, but again, partly 
the guy who used to put bananas in the freezer and crack them on the counter and pour chocolate over the broken chunks, the guy who'd once stood outside a classroom window in a rainstorm to see how Jody was faring with that little red-headed shit who wouldn't give her a chance at the book table, the guy who used to hand-paint bird feeders in college and sell them on weekends in Boulder, wearing a jester hat and doing a little juggling routine, he'd he started to fall again, caught himself, froze in a hunched-over position, hurtled forward, fell flat on his face, chucked his chin on a root. You had to laugh. You almost had to laugh. He got up, got doggedly up. His right hand presented as a bloody glove. Tough nuts, too bad. Once in football, a tooth had come out. Later in the half, Eddie Blandick had found it. He'd taken it from Eddie, flung it away. That had also been him. Here was the switchbank. It wasn't far now. Switchback. What to do when he got there? Get kid out of pond. Get kid moving. Force walk kid through woods, across soccer field, to one of the houses on pool. If nobody home, pile kid into Nissan. Crank up heater. Drive to Our Lady of Sorrows. Urgent care. Fastest route to urgent care. 50 yards to the trailhead. 20 yards to the trailhead. Thank you, God, for my strength. In the pond, he was all animal thought, no words, no self, blind panic. He resolved to really try. He grabbed for the edge. The edge broke away. Down he went. He hit mud and pushed up. He grabbed for the edge. The edge broke away. Down he went. It seemed like it should be easy getting out, but he just couldn't do it. It was like at the carnival. It should be easy to knock three sawdust dogs off a ledge. And it was easy. It just wasn't easy with the amount of balls they gave you. He wanted the shore, he knew that was the right place for him, but the pond kept saying no. Then it said, maybe. The ice edge broke again, but breaking it, he pulled himself infinitesimally toward shore, so that when he went down, his feet found mud sooner. The bank was sloped. Suddenly, there was hope. He went nuts, he went total spaz. Then he was out, water streaming off him, a piece of ice like a tiny pane of glass in the cuff of his coat. Trapezoidal, he thought. In his mind, the pond was not finite, circular, and behind him, but infinite and all around. He felt he'd better lie still, or whatever had just tried to kill him would try again. What had tried to kill him was not just in the pond, but out here, too, in every natural thing, and there was no him, no Suzanne, no mom, no nothing, just the sound of some kid crying like a terrified baby. That was the first half of 10th of December by George Saunders. I asked George where the story came from. Someone in our circle of friends uh, or family, I can't remember who it was even, but got sort of this really grim diagnosis. And my mind just did that split second lurch forward into this thought of, oh God, you know, what will I do if, if or when that happens to me? And my mind kept going really quickly and it said, oh, I'll just I'll just kill myself. I don't want to make everybody suffer. Uh, how would I do it? Into Thin Air had a, a freezing to death sequence. It sounded pretty blissful. So I thought, oh, I do that. And just as quickly, I went, no, I won't do that. I'll just have to go through it. And that all t- took place just in a few seconds. You know, sometimes that's great story material is when your mind just spontaneously lurches forward because it's telling itself a story in hyperspeed. So I thought, oh, yeah, that'd be interesting. What if a guy like me um, decided to, um, 
you know, quote unquote, spare his family some pain by by ending his life. And and the way he was going to do it was go into the woods and freeze himself to death. And one day I went, yeah, but he can't succeed. That's no good. And then a few more months down the line, I just thought, well, what would stop him? Uh, a little while, it was actually literally an angel in white came down and interrupted him. And then, then it became, at some point, I don't remember when it became just, you know, kind of like, well, what would be the most convincing thing to stop him? And it was a kid. So a kid in white, how would the kid stop him? And for a while it was kind of, uh, you know, well, he, he wouldn't want to do that in front of a kid or he wouldn't want the kid to find his body. And then I think at that point I started writing and it worked its way out to, to the story that it is. So it was kind of interestingly, um, I don't usually have a plan like that beforehand, but with this one I had a feeling it was going to be good and I just didn't want to start writing until it was a little bit um, laid out in front of me. You know, I struggled, still am struggling with um, two forces. One is that I'm, I feel like an optimistic person who has, you know, really always been happy to be alive, but my work tends to come out with more power when it's got a negative component, you know, like a critical or a uh, um, sarcastic component. So I'm just, you know, conscious of this kind of lifelong mission to try to get the mix right. Uh, it's a little easier for me and maybe in general to be sort of negative or, or you know, cautionary. So I just finished a book called uh, Swim in a Pond in the Rain, and it's just um, a compilation of, of 20 years of teaching the Russian short story to uh, our MFA writers at Syracuse. You know, and I, one of the things that that Russian book made me realize is that we, well, at least I write stories differently than, than they did. You know, their, their stories, I think, are better. But in a certain way, the, the Russian style, or at least the style of, say, you know, Chekhov and Tolstoy, is not really the mode in which I write. I, I, I think I use the same basic principles like escalation and, you know, specificity, but I'm doing something really, um, I would say different and less, uh, but maybe if I'm being generous, it's something that is maybe more, uh, you know, it's contemporary. It's maybe responding more to how we live. It's got really good cause and effect, you know, which I, I remember working on really hard, uh, by which I mean, you know, uh, a scene causes an escalate, you know, uh, an uptick in the stakes. Uh, and then it also causes something in the next scene to happen. And I also remember working really hard on the, um, once I realized it was going to be an alternating point of views, a lot of that work is really painstaking, kind of boring work of just saying, well, when do I clip off scene three and where do I start scene four? And do I overlap? Do I go back in time? And that's really, um, and then if you do that, if you make an adjustment, it, it changes a bunch of other stuff in other places. So uh, there were some real moments of inspiration and being moved, but there were a lot more moments of just almost like cutting fabric, you know, and trying to piece this together with that. I remember a lot of, um, you know, just trying to get the physicality right, because the story, you know, ask the reader to believe, uh, it, it asks the reader to go on a long trip and for some fairly unusual things to happen. And my experience has been to bolster that effect, you have to really be truthful about the physical stuff. So I remember calling a friend who was a, a real outdoors person and just asking about hypothermia and, you know, whether it would actually benefit the kid for Eber to give him his clothes. Uh, he said it would. You know, so so I think a, a story like that has to be kind of, especially with the humor and with the wild events, it has to be really 
foundationally sound in terms of its physics, and so I, I took a lot of a lot of care with that. And I think all of that came from the Russians. You know, the idea that if you if you want to write a story that um, goes into a refined moral space, you can't just do that. You have to undergird it with with a physical reality that does that. You know, that ancient trick of making the reader believe that the thing is actually happening. And then when the kid goes in the pond, you're like, well. You know, I was with him so far. I, I haven't found anything to object to. So that kid's in the damn pond, you know. And that—that's a lot of the day-to-day -day work is just making sure that a, you know, a reasonable reader would have no reason to bail out. I asked George what he loves about Amanda Shires's work. Just uh, she's one of that handful of of artists that are. I just feel they're close to me in my in my um, in my aspiration. Like there's, you know, a group of, of writers and musicians and some painters uh, and actors and comics and stuff that I just uh, I don't know. I'm just always alert to what they do. And and again, selfishly because I know that it'll it'll help me with what I do. So I, I think she's really uh, something very very special. If I if I find this person's new album or read this person's new book or see this movie, then it's going to kind of um, incite a little bit of artistic, I mean, it's ambition and it's kind of, maybe there's an element of competition or, or like wanting to be in that group of people. I just, I was just writing a, um, an introduction to Dubliners by James Joyce and I read that book and that just, it just filled me with ambition, you know, like, oh God, if somebody can do something that beautiful, there's still much to be done, and I've been wasting my time, you know. Even, even just the other day when I heard Amanda's song for the first time, I'm like, I really, I, I felt like I'd been about only 70% active in pursuing beauty in my life, you know. And, we, and I feel like we should always be around 95. So, and you know, I, and I'm pretty busy in my life, so there are times where I just kind of slip a little bit, and I'm not uh, pushing myself to be as, as fervently creative as I should be, and if I you know, turn to this group of artists that I love, then I, I kind of sit on the fire a little bit and go, what, what are you doing? You know, why, why are you cleaning the basement instead of writing a story? But I also want to say how much I loved your song. I, I listened to it again this morning. It was really moving. And, and uh, the thing that you in there that was really right was this idea of need, you know, that we talked about that, uh, you know, you to be... To be loved, you have to acknowledge that you you have needs, you know. And and I think that's what he, what Eber's last minute thing was that he he didn't um he wasn't able to say you know if you need me he he he, he didn't in a certain way he was sort of not confident enough to be needed, you know. So I think he picked up on that really beautifully that that you know he that's actually you know even at that very late stage in his life he he finally learned something about love on that hillside which is. I have to admit that I am. Need, I have needs. You know, I'm, I'm not. I'm not an immortal god. I, I'm dying. To be in love, you have to be willing to let someone else strive on your behalf. In other words, you have to be willing to ask for help. You have to be willing to accept help. And I know for me, that was sort of a, you know, as a, as a, a male who grew up in the '70s, I think part of the the kind of bullshit story you were getting was that you should always be strong. You should never need help. You know, the only romantic thing is to give help. But one of the things I've learned over my marriage is that actually that's the most important thing is to be able to say, you know, I, I need you to do this and, and, and trust that the other person will and trust that the other person won't think less of you if you ask for help. This is my song, If You Need Me. 
my song, If You Need Me, which is available wherever music streams. For the second half of the story and a brand new song by Amanda Shires, please listen to part two, which is episode nine of season three. One final note. George Saunders is, in many ways, the reason I started doing this project. And anyone who has seen the songwriter logo and the cover for George's book, 10th of December, will have noticed striking similarities. As you've heard in this episode, and as you'll hear in the next, George is as generous and as kind and as supportive as an artist possibly can be. So first, let me say what a pleasure and an honor it is to have George on the show that he inspired. Second, if there are artists, podcasters, musicians, songwriters, or writers who could use some advice or even just a kind word, please don't be shy. I'm at benarthurmail at gmail.com, and I'd be glad to try to pass along some of the many kindnesses I've received from George and many others like him. In any case, thanks for listening.